episode 153 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. Yeah, my name is uh, Tarek. A lot of people call me T. I'm flying for one of the majors here in the U.S. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode was with Tarek. Tarek is a current major airline pilot. He's flying in the United States, and he has previous experience of flying in the United States and in the Middle East. Find out his story, find out his path, why he made the decisions he made to gain the experience he needed for his dream job. This is one story I'm very excited to tell, not only because he's a fellow Ohio State Buckeye, but also because his story is very inspiring and it's one that's just very interesting. I don't think I've really told a story like this before. Aviation, Nation, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram. That is where I'm most active, answering DMs, posting a lot of pictures, get an insight to what it's like to fly corporate and fractional. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun and I post as much as I can on there. Also, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot the pilot. As I've said before, 2021 is a year of the Patreon. I'm going to be posting probably three videos just this week for Patreon members exclusively. That's going to be with Jason from Learn the Finer Points. We have a full interview video podcast that's going up there. Uh, A week, I do a a day in the life, but a week long video of every single day what's going on in my day. So those are pretty cool. And getting some good feedback. So there's some very beneficial stuff over on Patreon. Do check it out. And just remember the podcast will always be free, but uh, I really do appreciate your support. Aviation, that's all. I'm not going to keep you guys too much longer. So any further ado, here's Tarek. Tarek, what's going on, man? First thing I want to say to you is OH and go Bucks. And I reply by IO, go yeah. Bucks. It's, it's always great having another Buckeye on and, uh, and just share our journey in aviation. Uh, we have been in contact for a while trying to get this going. So I'm excited to share your story as I think you have a unique story that I don't really know if I've mentioned too much about your route and how you got to a major airline. So I'm really excited to share your story. Well, I'm so happy to be able to finally do this and pilot to pilot, Buckeye to Buckeye. Yeah, I know, right? Absolutely. (laughs) We got to trademark that. (laughs) There you go. Well, cool, man. Let's start from the beginning. Why aviation? What was your original inspiration in becoming a pilot? All right. Well, I mean, so many inspirations, mainly my, my father growing up, he's a, he's a retired airline pilot now and coming back as, you know, as a child growing up, watching him come back and all the stories he had and, uh, just kind of, you know, trying to follow his footsteps and to kind of be like him. He was pretty much like my role model growing up. So, uh, that kind of started and on during you know, childhood and during school, we would go on. I didn't wasn't the pilot that he would own an airplane or anything like that. But during uh, like summer break and Christmas and spring break and vacations, we would I get a chance to go fly with him uh, on trips that he had. And back in the day, it was actually different than now. You know, before nine eleven, I'm a bit older than some of the people you've had recently in your podcast, a bit of a dinosaur, but, <laughs> but, uh, with that being said, one of the privileges of before nine 11 was being able to step in the cockpit. 
So, you know, just kind of had like first time experience sitting in 747s, 707s, Elton 11s and a bunch of Airbus airplanes and getting a first hand view of what was going on up there and just kind of wanted to follow that dream. Was it kind of the only thing you ever wanted to do from a young age is be a pilot? I think for two days when I was three, I wanted to be a cowboy and a fireman, but that lasted like two days. <laughs> I think it's normal. I think everyone goes through a cowboy, fireman, cop uh, kind of phase, you know? Yeah, pretty that's, much. That's really funny. What was your dad's mindset for you? Because obviously, I mean, you know, aviation, especially right now, is a very rocky industry. It can be very unforgiving. I mean, it can have its great moments and it's definitely worth pursuing if this is what you want to do, but it is just, you need to know that it can be rocky like we're in right now. Did your dad warn you about that? Or was your dad like, huh, you got the aviation bug. There's nothing I can do. Just uh, go for it. You know what? They never pushed one way or the other, but I mean, just never like never went on an official form of flight lesson as growing up. Uh, pretty much what he did one day came back when Radio Shack was around kind of dating myself here, but brought a scanner with him and we plugged it in, went up to the rooftop, listened to airplanes. And he's like, this is what you listen to. This is what this means. I mean, I was listening to ADISs and recording them when I was probably like seven years old. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so never, never pushed one way or the, or the other, uh, start actually flying gliders on during summer breaks. And then on my 17th birthday, uh, they arranged for me to go over to Rickenbacker Air Force Base or a National Guard base here down the southeast side of Columbus. And through some family friends, I got to fly an A-7 simulator. And uh, I think that when they saw that and how I did that and everything else, they pretty much said, wow, okay, this is what this guy wants to do. So ever since then, they kind of tried, instead of just kind of being neutral, they kind of gave me all the support I wanted to do. Yeah, or it's important it. to have that kind of support because it's it's a tough process. It's, uh, yeah. it's not easy, as I'm sure you will say. Yeah, 100% agree with you. I mean, we've all kind of, uh, one bond that we, everybody that's gone down this path or this industry is we all kind of share, you know, experiences one way or the other of how we got to where we are. Yeah, so talk a little bit about the process of going from kind of a dream to uh, maybe even just an idea of being a pilot to actually having your parents' full support and making it happen. Did you come up with a plan? Did you have like a dream board, a vision board? Uh, uh, like if I, in 10 years, I'll be flying for this major or I'm going to do this to get these amount of hours. What was kind of the, the, the situation that you set yourself up for? Uh, to be honest with you, like I've listened to some of your, uh, some of the people you've interviewed. And I was super impressed by the step-by-step that they had and the, what they followed and kind of made me look back at my journey. And, uh, it's just kind of like, I didn't really have any, I just kind of knew what my end goal wanted to be. I never had a step-by-step of what I wanted to do. Um, you know, starting off when I was pretty much, like I said earlier, flying gliders. And then, uh, by 15, 16 years old, I was flying single engine airplanes, got my, uh, 16 years old, I got my ratings my private and I went to a little flight school here at Port Columbus or John Glenn today. And, uh, I didn't even know between part 141 and part 61. I just knew there was an airplane on the ramp. How can I go fly it? And the instructor started, I sat there and I mean, at that point in time, it was $35 an hour for the 172. And he was like, yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) And, uh, uh, for the uh, 152, I think it was like $30 an hour, but I wanted to fly big airplanes. So 172 was bigger. So <laughs> so I walked in, sat there with the instructor and he started telling me about 
pulled out a big sheet of, I still remember that till today. I mean, this was over 25, 30 years ago. And the guy pulled out this big cardboard piece of paper and he started explaining the curriculum and this, this, this and that. And I was like, okay, when do we go fly the airplane? I see the airplane parked outside. And he's explaining to me the whole 141 versus 61 concept. And I'm like, all right, come on, can you get done so we can go fly? And then uh, that day we ended up not flying. I just came back home super disappointed, you know. And then making a long story short, uh, went back the next week because that was our next appointment. And he's like, well, our 141 lost the certificate, so we're going to have to do this part 61. I'm like, okay, can we go fly now? <laughs> and then uh, sure enough, we walked out to the airplane, did the pre-flight, and off we went. And uh, the journey started on that day. That's so cool. You're like, look, bro, I don't care about what you guys say. Just get me in that plane and let's go. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly how it was. I'm like, I still remember him just like sitting there talking, talking, talking. And the airplane was sitting outside, 738 Victor Papa, red tail, or is it, yeah, white and red Cessna 172. That's funny how like you can remember that so well. So, so specifically, and you'll never forget the tail number, the color of the plane, probably what the guy or girl, your flight instructor looked like and all that. It's always going to be ingrained in your memory forever. 100%. Yeah. 100% is burnt in my retinas. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about gliders because I don't think many younger pilots really understand the benefits of maybe flying gliders first. You can fly them. I don't actually know the full rules, so I'm, I want to be careful on what I say here. But you can fly those before, or it's a different rating than uh, obviously than a, a single engine airplane. Uh, but I'm pretty sure you can fly those before you turn 16 and before you start soloing, and you can kind of log that kind of time for the gliders. Obviously not powered, but uh, talk about your experience with that and if it was beneficial. If you'd recommend that, yeah, I mean it was amazing. I mean I was like I started flying gliders I think when I was 13 and a half, and I was flying solo before I was 15. And I wasn't even heavy enough that I had to wear a parachute for ballast weight because that's how light I was in the airplane. <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, I, I mean, I remember like going out and we were doing like winch launches because for, for gliders, you can do catapult launches or sea or, uh, winch launches or the other type would be uh, like air toes and winch launches were like almost being just pulled off a aircraft carrier deck i mean you're off the ground in less than a second and a half and you're climbing up at a crazy you know there's no vertical speed indicator in the glider but i mean you were just shooting right up to the sky and uh and then it was amazing like learning to fly without an engine and the doing stalls in the glider without an engine just teaches you so much about airplanes and flying and traffic pattern and managing your altitude and your speed and your momentum and something such as a glider and then uh, it definitely helped uh, later on. I mean, when I came back, I, one of my first solo, I had like three and a half hours total time in an engine. Yeah. So, but, you know, that being said, it just, I, I did have almost 150 glider sorties, 150 launches in a glider. So that definitely came in helpful. My first solo was done here at Port Columbus Airport um, off runway 28 right. And I still remember they had this Delta 727 waiting for me to take off, you know, come in to do my two landings. Uh, yeah, and a lot of people are intimidated by air traffic control and ATC being a Class C or before then it used to be, I think, called a TARSA. I can't remember the exact designation back in the day. But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, I mean, having that 
been listening to scanners and radios since I was like six or seven years old and the glider background and all that kind of stuff, it definitely all came back to, it all came together at a really high rate. It was very, you know, very beneficial. What do you think is the most beneficial thing for a pilot to start flying gliders before they get into a powered aircraft? Is it the power management that you understand? Is it just kind of understanding how an airplane works in certain situations, uh, how the airplane's going to respond in the stall? Uh, what is the main benefit, do you think? Or maybe a couple of benefits of getting your glider rating first or just flying gliders? Well, I mean, like, you know, when you start working on your private pilot license, I mean, you're supposed to look outside the window. In the glider, there's nothing to look inside. At. The only thing that you have normally is a little string that's hanging off out of the canopy, and that's telling you if you got, you know, if you don't have enough rudder left or right, or you know, when you're doing your turns, as far as keeping the turn coordinator. Uh, if you ever watch Instagrams of sail of uh, sailplanes, you'll always see that little string hanging off the top of the off the top of the canopy. And so everything you're doing is looking outside. So you're keeping your attitude, your bank, your stall recoveries, and and everything. It teaches you everything you would need to know into a powered aircraft. I mean, all your senses are heightened. Uh, when you do a stall in a glider, it's literally like quiet. You don't hear anything because there's no engine just idling. There's nothing. All you hear is just the wind. And all of a sudden, the wind is just completely gone. There's literally, it's just a piece as if you're just like hanging up there suspended in the air. It's an, it's an amazing experience. I mean, it's just like, it's just a sound you would never, ever you know, not forget. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I flew a glider one time with my buddy Kurt in Ohio, actually. I can't remember where we went, Marion or something, someplace up there. And it was like nothing I've ever done before. It was so quiet, but it was also loud, a different kind of loud when the wind's rushing over. Uh, it was just really cool. And just the idea of learning that power management at an early stage in your career is probably one of the most beneficial things you can do other than getting your tailwheel to really learn uh, rudder usage. I mean, it is it is really going to make you a better pilot in the long run. Not saying you have to do it. I didn't do it, and I still turned out to. I mean, I think I'm an okay pilot, pretty good pilot, but I, I probably could be better if I would have uh, incorporated a tailwheel and uh, a glider before my training. Yeah, I mean, that's. It's, I mean, it's uh, it's so impressive. I mean, you're coming in. Uh, the the glide ratio for those airplane, the lift ratio is just amazing. And so now when you're coming in to manage your descent, you're using the speed brakes and the speed, most gliders have these massive big spoilers and you're just managing those to put you down exactly where you want to touch down. And if just for like when you're training just for demo purposes, just before you touch down, you store the brakes away or the spoilers, and next thing you're just like floating down the wrong way. They're super impressive, super impressive machines. Yeah. Did you ever have any scary moments in the glider at all? Like, uh oh, this isn't good. Well, you know, like you, you for winch launches, what you practice as cable brakes, which is pretty much, uh, I mean, right after due to, due to the tension that's on the cable. A lot of times, uh, not a lot of times, I mean, hopefully not a lot of times, but every now and then if you get like a pretty stiff crosswind conditions and the cable is been, you know, has been used too many times, you might get a cable break and that's kind of losing your engine right to take off. So, uh, of course, you can't do a 180 and go back land and the impossible 180s that people talk about and all that kind of stuff. So you just have to, you know, figure out a spot straight ahead and land and just so I've had a couple of big cable breaks during the you know during training but that's about it yeah well good i'm glad that nothing else too scary happened to you 
What I didn't know about gliders is that you can, like, there's people that fly across countries. Like, I mean, like, actual long flights and gliders and stay up for a very, very long time. That's super impressive. I mean, some guys over the Alps and even here in the States, like, they, I mean, they they take those things up to, like, up in the 20s and uh, 20,000 feet plus, and they're a lot, they're airborne for like a few hours i'm like my you know it's pretty impressive what they can do with those things there's a a historic story at the place i fly at where a glider actually collided with one of our planes a long time ago and everyone survived which was amazing but it was uh pretty crazy and i don't know much of the details but it was uh pretty pretty wild yeah 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 it's that's always good when people can walk away and and have a bit of a war story (laughs) and as more more importantly learn something from it so you know and share the story with other people so like you said earlier nothing because people you know in this industry we we learn a lot from other people's experiences or your own experiences yeah or your own experience yeah so moving forward and going into your actual training what was uh your training looking like was it pretty accelerated because like you said you soloed in three and a half hours did you continue that pace up until your private or are there some parts where you kind of had hit some sticking points and struggled? No, it wasn't accelerated at all. I mean, at that time I pretty much, although it only costed $35 an hour, but minimum wage was like $4 an hour. <laughs> so to, uh, although my parents were very you know, supportive, they paid for my, you know, they helped me pay for my college, but my flying, I did on my own. Uh, so at that stage I was flying, about maybe once every two weeks and uh and everybody that knows that's gone on that pace knows you know like how slow that pace is and especially in ohio here in the winter months you know february through probably march with the weather being low and just when you're working your vfr rating you want to you know you want nice days so uh, i'd say my slowest rating was my private and then uh, after my private which probably took about five six months to get done which felt like forever and then after that i was you know once the instrument and everything else rolled by i was able to kind of knock them out one after the other at a fairly quicker pace did you keep in mind about aviation when you're choosing college or were you kind of just like nope ohio state going there no matter what um you know i didn't do a whole lot of research i uh, i always wanted to join the marine corps and fly for you know, with the Marines or the Navy, I wanted to be, I wanted to watch, you know, I grew up watching Top Gun and Iron Eagle. You know, I mean, in today's time, there's Instagram, there's YouTube, and you have so many outlets to, that people can see, you know, like other things. You can see air refueling, you can see like low passes, you can see maneuvers being done, you can see different airplanes and all that kind of stuff. When I was growing up, um, the only thing I had to see was F-16s and Iron Eagle and F-14s and Top Gun, you know, and we, and we'd watch those. My brother would be like, are you going to watch this again? You've watched it like a hundred times this week already. <laughs> so, I mean, those are the only things that we had, you know, that's the Tom Cruise being Maverick and Doug Masters and Iron Eagle. And uh, like him and I would like have all those movies memorized so uh so yeah so it was just like didn't really so i've always wanted to go fly off a boat well fly off an aircraft carrier the two things i always wanted to do is fly for the military and fly with my dad those were my two goals i've had in mind and uh haven't done either (laughs) (laughs) i was just about to ask well have you done those goals so there you go (laughs) yeah no so i haven't done either but to answer your question yeah ohio state was over here there was a district, I wasn't quite sure, like after graduating college, 
uh, like went up to a recruiting office with the Marine Corps, had a couple of recruiters come over here. And uh, they kind of showed me the path, the the ROTC or the PLC program, which is a platoon leader class, and uh, which is the one that I kind of pursued. But that was in the early 90s, early to mid 90s. And at during that time, um, the district I was in here at Ohio State, kind of they decided to kind of downsize and we lost the slots that we were in that we that was I had. And uh, with that being said, uh, at that time, Ohio State was a, a quarter system. I think, I believe now they're a semester system. And for me to transfer to a school that had a vacant slot, I would have lost like another year's worth of credits. And uh, that meant that would have meant I would have been at university or college for like over six years. And I just want another year uh, yeah, of money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just want to go out to the real world. I want to go fly. So I kind of pursued, you know, just kind of like uh, the civilian route at, at that stage. Fun fact, Ohio State transferred from some or quarters to semesters, transitioned quarters to semesters my senior year. So I oh, went really? through that transition. Yeah, quarters <laughs> yeah. was awesome. I, I loved quarters, but... They went, had, yeah, they went by so fast. You got yeah. to do different classes, 100%. Yeah, it was great. So we had three quarters in the, the summer quarter, which we being playing football there, we had to take summer classes. So we were there for four quarters. Instead of two semesters, and how it was broken up was um, they had what was a winter, spring, and then no winter, fall, sp- fall, winter, and spring. Yeah, okay. There, it's yeah. been so long, man. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, I loved quarters. They're the best. Yeah, I I enjoyed them too. You know, so that was pretty cool. It made the year go by so fast. Yeah. Did you um, join the Ohio State flight program? Actually, no. I got my degree. I started off in mechanical engineering, actually aeronautical engineering, then mechanical engineering, and then you had to maintain a 3.0 GPA to keep your PLC program, your PLC slot with the Marine Corps. And it was, and I had a full time job working at one of the FBOs here, like fueling and deicing airplanes. I work on the ramp uh, for all other airlines, like just throwing bags and pushing airplanes back and doing all that kind of stuff. So between that full-time job and a full-time class course, it was kind of hard to maintain that uh, GPA. So uh, I did, couldn't do the flight program. So I kept uh, so I kept going from downgrading from aeronautical engineering to, uh, to mechanical, then ended up going to the business school. So, so I did not go to their flight program. No, I did everything Part 91, as I mentioned earlier, through the airport here. Part 61 through Columbus? So through Part 61, yeah. Part yeah. 61, yeah. So through Columbus and eventually actually up at Ohio State Airport. There was a little flying club that I kind of finished up, up there. Is Capital City? No, there's another one. Uh, there's another one on the one of the end of the T-hangers out oh, there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not quite sure if it's still there or not. So, a lot of people ask me how they can create relationships. I always talk about mentors and how they can find a mentor. Would you recommend or talk a little bit about your process of working the line? Because working the line is probably one of the best ways you can meet pilots, you can talk to people, you can create a mentor, you can create contacts or contacts. Is that one of the or one of the uh, reasons why you became in the line service, or is it just to be around aviation? You know, I, I just wanted to be around airplanes. <laughs> I was like probably the biggest airplane here. Was a, was or maybe still is an airplane geek around out there. So uh, I just wanted to be around airplanes. So my first job was working at the, uh, I wasn't even 18 yet. I went to the airport and they're like, no, we can't hire you because you got to be 18 to drive on the ramp. I'm like, then who hires me? They're like, well, there's this uh, the company across the field. It's called Dobbs, which now I think is Gate Gourmet. 
so I went over there and uh, they hired me. I was excited. I had to go get my badge and watch all the airport safety videos and all that kind of stuff. And uh, then the next thing, they stuck me in the kitchen making airplane food. I was <laughs> back when there was airplane food. I was like, no, I want to be outside by the airplanes, you know. And my biggest excitement, again, I was like 17 years old. My biggest excitement was going, you know, during during lunch break at three o'clock in the morning, going outside and looking at the airplanes through the fence. And once I turned 18, I was able to go across the field and work at the FBO. And that's when I kind of started making friends and relationships, which I still have till today with the people who run that airport, you know, the FBO and work there, which have, like you have said yourself and your previous guests, it's got, it's worth, you know, it's worth in weight in gold. Uh, I mean, I used to feel airplanes and one of the awesomest, you know, John Glenn, you know, used to come in with his Baron. He used to, and do come in, I would have chats with him and stuff like that. And uh, other people would come out sometimes and they promise you, you know, look, if you clean my airplane, I'll give you a ride or stuff like that. Uh, I've had helicopters, clean up helicopters, wash them. You could eat out of the exhaust pipe, you know, just in the promise that you're going to get a helicopter ride. So, you know, know, do all those things, do little jobs here and then and uh, uh, odd jobs here and there. And eventually, uh, you know, get to go on a ride in an airplane and just experience things firsthand and, you know, make friends that you would, you know, friendships that last forever. What was the hardest part about being in that situation? Did you have a lot, not necessarily the hardest part of being in that situation, but when you are younger in aviation and your dream of being an airline pilot is so far away, could you find, did you find yourself not able to fully enjoy where you were at the moment? Cause you're constantly wanting to be in the air, constantly wanting to fly for an airline or was it easier for you to kind of be like, well, it's just a process. I'm going to take it step by step. You know, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to, I knew I was not going to get to the airlines before finishing college. So all this happened while I was in college. So I knew that, you know, that was the goal. So when I finished college and graduated, then I could pursue the next, next stage. I didn't have like a long drawn plan to what I was going to do next. I'll just cross that bridge when I get to it. That's been pretty much my whole life kind of, I mean, it's worked out for me. I it's, I'm not saying it's been the easiest maybe, but it just worked out for me. You know, I'm not, sometimes we're all different people, different agendas. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just after college, then, you know, that the next step was due. And then, okay, now what I do now I go get, I have to get a job at that stage in the mid to mid nineties, you, I mean, there are CFIs out there that had three, 4,000 hours instructing before they even got looked at by the regionals. And so that was, I didn't really, wasn't too excited to go get my CFI. But I knew that was the path that I had to go do. So I went got my uh, got all my instruction was for my CFI done. And then, as you mentioned earlier, through one of my mentors and one of my connections, I got uh, you know at that stage I had almost a thousand hours, and I was ferrying airplanes around prior to that, like ferrying airplanes cross country and all that sort of stuff part. And uh, one of my mentors introduced me to somebody, and I got my job flying cargo. And then, I mean, like after that, I just pretty much my logbook just exploded with hours. And then from then on, yeah, exactly. I mean, with your Pilatus time, you've kind of know how it is. I mean, you're just flying part 135 
And uh, I had to do an SIC program with a company here called StarCheck, where I did about two to 300 hours in the right seat. And uh, you get to uh, log part 91 legs. And I would always go look for the part 91 legs ferrying airplanes around. And after a few months, I think maybe like five, six months, I got those hours that I needed and got my 135 checkout. And from then on, it was just like an elevator going up. Yeah. So after, what did you, you had your private and then you said a couple, when did you get your instrument commercial and all those ratings? Was it all before, was a couple before college and then a couple after college? Did you get any ratings in college? Or like you said, you had to really focus on getting that 3.0 GPA and the PCL or the PLC? No, the PLC dream kind of died out almost, I think it was in my junior year. So the 2.0, the, sorry, the 3.0 kind of dropped from there. I just kind of started focusing on the flying part. And uh, yeah, so I, I had I had all my ratings. I had my commercial and everything else before graduating college. I think I had everything by my sophomore year. I already had my commercial rating. And then after college, not excited, which it seems no one is really excited about getting their CFI, but you went and got your CFI, right? Uh, you know what? Every time I'd go get, I get all my ratings on my endorsements for my check ride, and every time I would go for my check ride, the weather would crap out, and or the plane would break. So I never got my checkout done for my. I never did my F my CFI checkout. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, I, I put all and it, that job came open, you know, and then just never looked back. I just from then on, I just pressed forward. Absolutely. If someone's going to pay yeah. you to fly a plane and you don't have to take the CFI check ride, sign me up. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, you know, but looking back, I mean, fast forwarding like almost twenty years later, the CFI, the fundamentals of instruction, the FOI, the fundamentals of instruction, and some of the stuff that I had learned like during the CFI training uh, came in very handy later on in life. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. So there's definitely uses that you can use that, whether you become an instructor for a company, whether you uh, just want to teach people anything. I mean, I'm guessing you learn a lot from that. Um, yeah, exactly. So you chose the ferry job. You talked about the SIC program. Talk a little bit about kind of 135 life and just how crazy it can be and how a lot of times some companies can put you in some bad situations. I don't know if you experienced it, but we all hear stories about people putting themselves in bad situations and didn't know if you had any stories that you could tell. You know what? Um, I worked for one of the, probably the biggest at that time, uh, canceled check mover. I mean, canceled check business kind of evaporated now. It's all, it's probably almost gone at this, this stage of electronic banking. But we used to fly chief barons, chieftains, and Learjets and Aerostars, Cessna 310s, and later on, Caravans. And, I mean, you could set your watch by our schedule. Uh, you know, growing up, I've lived in the same place uh, in just outside the airport parameter here in Columbus. And growing up through in high school, I'd always hear, I'd always hear these airplanes, these prop airplanes, like piston engines take off and land at night. I'm like, who's flying at night? I never knew who that was until I became one of those airplanes. I mean, you could literally set your watches by the the bank, you know, by how precise those airplanes were leaving and what time they were going and coming. Um, it was such a precise operation. It was pretty exciting. It was pretty, pretty uh, extraordinary. Uh, if you landed before six o'clock in the morning, if you live in a small town, you know how the little traffic lights will start flashing. You know, they will go from a normal red yellow green traffic light to a to a four-way stop 
Yeah, if we had tailwinds and we're going to arrive, oh, sorry, if we had headwinds and we're going to arrive after six o'clock in the morning, then we'd fly to airport B. If we're going to, if we're going to get before, if we're going to get there before six o'clock in the morning, then we'd go to airport A because the carrier would have a shorter, quicker route, not having to stop at that red light. I mean, that's how precise the flying was. It was super exciting. And then one of the most biggest lessons that we had was day one of, uh, of class of ground school is uh, the guys, one of the instructors walked in and he's actually still a friend of mine. And he said those words and, or, and I still remember them until today. And he's like, the, when we cut you a check on the 15th or 16th of the month and on the 1st, it has our name on the top left corner. So we want you to fly the airplane the way we want you to fly airplane. We, these airplanes belong to us and you fly them the way we teach you how to fly them. If you have your own way of flying, then you go buy your own airplane and you fly the way you want to fly. And everybody kind of took that to heart. And everybody flew those airplanes. Uh, so, you know, to the way they taught us how to fly them. And uh, making a long story short, again, uh, we were never put into, I mean, you're 20, you're 20 years old, 21 years old, and you're excited. It's your first real job flying. Uh, you know, you're flying these high-performance, multi-engine airplanes. Uh, I mean, we and you learn so much from them. You think you know, but you don't know. <laughs> you know, you've learned so much, so many lessons that you learn from what you did right and what you did wrong. And uh, did you put yourself into compromising positions? Hopefully not. But into into learning positions, definitely, yes. Yeah, I learned more flying freight than I learned than anything else I ever did. Uh, my personal minimums, uh, how airplanes work, how schedules work, how, what I will and won't do, uh, just so much I learned and it was a, uh, I'm very thankful for the time. And like you said, it was all crazy learning experiences, which was great. Maybe the pilot I am today. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I definitely believe that. I mean, I flew those props for about maybe 3000 hours between the Barons and Chieftains, all single pilot. Uh, nighttime in the Midwest, down in the South, you know, winters, winters up in Michigan and over Lake Erie up in Minnesota and doing like, you know, July, August thunderstorms down over Mississippi. And uh, you learn so much. Your, your bucket of experience just explodes. You know, you never stop learning. I mean, what, till today, 25, 30 years later, st- still learning every single day. For sure. Let's take a break real quick and uh, I'll get right back into it. Well, everyone, welcome back. We were just talking about 135 Freight Life, and now we are going to transition in to see the rest of your story. Uh, what was next after? Well, I guess what I say, you never really, you said you never really had a plan for what was going to be next. You kind of just dealt with each step as it was going. So what opportunities were you choosing between and what was kind of, uh, what were you choosing to do for your next job? Because obviously no one wants to stay flying small plane 135 their whole life. It's just not a lifestyle you can keep up forever. So what was going to be next for you? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really know what was next. You know, the next thing was uh, staying with that company. They had jets, they had Lear jets, and my number came up, and they were like, "Okay, where when do I when do I start school?" So then I went to a Lear school in Wichita. They sent you out to Lear school. Went through the Lears, and the next thing, a few months passed, almost a year, and then I've been with that company for almost four or five years at that stage. 
and between the pistons and the Lear, and I was looking at upgrading on the Learjet. When a friend of mine came up and he's like, hey, uh, send me a resume. I'm like, what for? This is, again, before the internet was out, before websites, before World Wide Web and all that kind of stuff. So it was all pretty much you'd have to have a point of contact. And uh, he's like, just send me a resume. And there's companies buying these CRJs. They're flying for Northwest Airlines up in Detroit, if you're interested. I'm like, well, I don't know. Here's my resume. I went over to his place, dropped him off a resume, and he took it up to uh, a company at that stage called Express Airlines One, and up, which was doing flying for Northwest Airlines. They just opened up a base up in Detroit. And uh, next thing you know, about a few days later, there I get a ticket on Northwest DC Nine from Columbus up to Detroit, and I sit there for an interview with a pilot and the HR person. And that was my second interview ever because the first one was at Airnet with with one person. Now I had two people. And uh, did my interview. They asked her questions. And I walked out of that room going like, Ooh, <laughs> I don't know how that went. And by the time I landed in Columbus, I had a, a, what do you call it, a voicemail on my answering machine. <laughs> and uh, I played it, walked into the house, the light was flashing. I played it and they're like, when can you start? I was like, whoa, all right. I'm like, when do you want me to start? And I checked with my company and I'm like, I got like a Lear class, you know, Lear upgrade class starts in like two weeks and now it's two week notice. But you know what? I'll just go ahead and take this chance. So I went and told them, I gave my company a two week notice that I'm quitting. And I told the company up in Detroit or they're based actually in Memphis uh, that I can go ahead and start my, uh, my and start in two weeks. So uh, two weeks went by, and then next thing you know, I jumped in my car and drove down to Memphis to start my class for the CRJ. And this started was technically my, like a yeah. regional experience. Yeah, this was the regional. This is what this was the regional experience on the CRJ. Yeah, so started and I still remember like uh, finished my class, and then I, I had to start my IOE. And at this stage, I had no idea what reserve was and and what i mean i had no idea anything i just knew that they had airplanes that's all i knew <laughs> and uh so go, went down to finished class it, class was about two months you know between in doc and training and simulators and all that good stuff and then i start ioe and i remember still walking around the airplane doing my walk around the ioe captain i was flying with was running late from a connecting flight. So I called, uh, I called uh, d- uh, scheduling and they're like, oh yeah, just go out to gate uh, Bravo 24 and your airplane will be, will be arriving now and just do your thing. I'm like, I don't have a thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> what is my thing? <laughs> what is my before? thing? I don't know. It's like, I'm like, I'm the new kid on the block. It's my first flight ever flying passengers. I'm, I'm, my thing is flying boxes. <laughs> so I walked down the jetway and the airplane had come in and I still remember the flight and it walks up and she's like, oh, she starts asking me like a bazillion questions. I'm like, ah, like, I don't know. Like, she's like, we need water. We need uh, labs, this, we need this and that. And I'm like, but then that's when working on the ramp for like almost seven years through college kind of paid off, you know, between my high school and college years. 
I'm like, okay, no problem. So I jumped on the radio, called ops, got all, all the stuff organized. I'm like, all right, what do I do next? Go do the walk around, fire up the APU, program the airplane. And the IOE captain logs up and he's like, oh, where did you go? I'm like, I guess so. We're not going to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, that was my first flight, you know, but just the whole, like, I guess the point I'm trying to make is the, all the background of working the ramp and all that kind of stuff paid off, you know, on, on, on that flight, on my first flight ever, uh, flying people around that kind of paid off. A lot of people can be intimidated about going from props or even some, uh, turbine planes, smaller piston turbine planes, uh, going to jets. Did you, were you intimidated at all? Do you think people should be intimidated? Because for me, going from a Pilatus to the jet, it kind of prepared me for the jet life. It was slower, but uh, I was on arrivals. I kind of knew how everything worked out. I just had to get used to the speed of the jet. What was your experience like? Uh, you know what, like flying those high-performance airplanes, uh, the pistons, the uh, the barons, and the uh, and the uh, and the chieftains, and spending all that time with them. I mean, you, you do an ILS at a, you know, if you're coming down the glide slope on an ILS, you're on a, in a jet, you're fully stabilized, you're coming down probably around 160 knots. And that's what we we're coming down in those in those props down the glide slope as well between 160 and 140. So things were progressing at about the same rate. Uh, and things above 10,000 feet, they all happen at 250 or better. Below 10,000, they happen at 250. So you only had that little, you know, about 60 knots or 70 knots worth of speed to kind of compensate from coming from a uh, baron or a chieftain to a leer below 10,000. Uh, we used to do that one departure out of uh, Teterboro where you take off and you got to level off at 1,500 feet because you got the Newark traffic coming overhead. Do that all the time. Still do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you pretty much, you you gear up and then you got to grab a handful of throttles and pull it all the way back. You know, otherwise you're just going to shoot right through the altitude or bust the airspeed. So you just, I mean, you just learn to manage the airplane, learn to manage your momentum. And that's what it is. It's momentum management to answer your question. Yeah, and definitely. once you have the, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. It just it's uh, airplane management and uh, figuring out how it works. Cause I mean, it's still an airplane at the end of the day. It's just things happen a little bit quicker and you just, your, your thought process is a little bit different. So it's just, uh, anyone can do it. Yep. You just got to, you know, stay ahead of the airplane back in college. I remember one, one of the guys that came and he's still, he's used to be a retired TWA captain. Uh, his name, he's locally here in the Columbus area. And he came and talked to our, one of my aviation classes. And uh, he it was one of the aviation management classes. And, you know, like this guy was like, I mean, there's like three, four steps below God, you know, <laughs> because he's like a 747 captain. Wow. You know, uh, and uh, he comes up and he's like, I don't strap in. I walk into the cockpit. And I could, I could imagine, as I told you earlier, I grew up on 747s and hearing my dad's stories and sitting in the jump seat. So I could imagine all these things uh, faced, you know, and he's like, I walk up in the 747-200, they got a spiraling staircase into the cockpit of the upper deck. He was like, I walk up to the spiral staircase, I walk into the cockpit and I sit in my captain's seat. I don't strap into the seat. I strapped a jet onto me with those five-point harness. So you don't, I strap, I don't strap into the airplane. I strap the airplane onto me and the airplane does whatever I want to do. And that always stuck with me. I was like probably 18 years old when I heard that I'm double that, double that age now, if not more. And I still remember him saying that. And same thing with that Lear, jumping that Lear, 
or a CRJ or your latitude or whatever airplane anybody's in. And you make that airplane do what you want to do. You don't go for the ride. You take it for a ride. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good way to look at it. I would agree. Uh, what was next for you? How long were you at the regional? I guess first question, how long were you at the regional for? I was at the regional for about four and a half to five years. I was, uh, which is, sounds like a long time to be at a regional, but, uh, at that, you know, but I was lucky because I was lucky, but I was unlucky. I was not unlucky because nine and 11 happened like a few months after I finished my line training and I got furloughed. I was like, oh my God, I just made the biggest mistake of my life. I could have been a captain on a Learjet now. And now I'm sitting here like, you know, on the street without a job. So I thought that was just the most biggest mistake I've done in my life of jumping ship and going to that regional. How long were you furloughed for? I was lucky. So that's like I said earlier, I was lucky, but not lucky. Uh, I was unlucky that I got furloughed, but that was an experience. And I was only furloughed for about four and a half to five months, which felt like eternity at that point. But, uh, after coming back, I went back into the airplane for about three months. Then they're like, all right, who has jet time? Uh, cause I had my jet time in the, in the Lear. I'm like, I raised my hand. They're like, all right, we need captains. So I'm like, all right, where do I sign up? So I signed up for the captain list. And then a buddy of mine calls me up about three, about five, six days after the bid closed. And he's like, hey, congratulations. I'm like, what for? He's like, you just got a captain spot. So I'd been at the airline less than a year total with the furlough time. And I got to go to the left seat of the CRJ. So you went from going to start a Learjet captain class to quitting that job, going to a regional, being an FO, getting furloughed, and then going to be a captain all within like, a, like what was it, about a year? Yeah, just less than a year. That's a I'll lot going on in one year. <laughs> so yeah, you went I'll from thinking you made the game. worst decision of your life to like, hey, this decision actually played off pretty well. Uh, yeah, I was thinking like, wow, all right, fair enough, cool. Yeah, like, works so, for me. Yeah, I have yeah. no experience, but let's go. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, I mean, at that stage, I mean, I still remember we, we had just, and the reason they did that is because it used to be a, a Saab 340 company, and they went from the Saab 340s to the CRJs. And uh, they started get, receiving airplanes left, right, and center. Um, at that stage, I mean, there was a whole thing with with the with the bankruptcy in Northwest and the clause and all the other stuff that was going on and like scope clause. But I mean, I was so new to the industry; I didn't know any what what any of that meant, you know, because there was zero exposure. I never had any exposure to all those things. I just pretty much was then, right then and there. So that what was in front of me. You know, they always say, you know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know much. <laughs> I just knew what was handed right in front of me. And, uh, yeah, so I uh, did uh, my my upgrade class on the CRJ and uh, did that for about well, almost four years in the left seat of the CRJ. Nice. Did you enjoy your time yeah. at Regional? Did you find I it like hard it. work or did you did you like it? It was hard work, but I loved it. I mean, I can, a lot of people like complain about oh, regional, this regional life back then. Uh, I mean, I knew I wasn't working for a major, so I wasn't expecting to have major rules at that stage of my life. And I loved the flying. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the airplanes. They were all, they were all fairly almost brand spanking airplanes. Actually, I went to the factory and picked up a few airplanes from the factory up in Montreal. 
so, I mean, yeah, and my commute from Columbus, Ohio, up to Detroit or down to Memphis was fairly straightforward. Uh, and, you know, it is, it's what you make out of it. So, and I was working with amazing people, the friendships I still have till today and friends that I still talk to almost like on a weekly basis till today. Would you have been okay if something were to happen in career, say coronavirus happened now and would have forced you to have extended, I'm talking about like 15, 20 years or even a career at a regional, would you have been okay with that? Or did you always want something more or something different? You know, I always had the hunger to fly big machines, like my dad said, like, like uh, we said earlier. I mean, in my household growing up, the 757 was, like, it wasn't a wide body, it was a small airplane. And I've always wanted to fly international, I always wanted to fly overseas, I wanted to to visit the world, I wanted to, the the, the romance of flying, you know, that that I had hunger for. How did you, so would that be a no then? You would not have been happy probably to, to fly the, the narrow body CRJ 200? Definitely not a wide body. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, like I would have definitely felt that there was something more, there was a rock or a card unturned that needed to be turned. I would have definitely had that. The same way I feel today with going flying F-18s or F-14s or F-16s or, you know, doing air-to-air refueling or flying, you know, or landing an F-18 on the boat. I still feel that I should have done that, you know? What, what, how was your, I know you said, like, again, you said you didn't really have a plan or like what steps to get to where you are next. So did your other, your next opportunity just kind of fall in your lap and have a, a friend or a buddy say, Hey, you should apply for this. Or was it uh, the internet or how did that work out? Well, the next opportunity didn't really quite fall in my lap. Well, actually, kind of little, literally fell on my lap, actually, to to rephrase myself. Because I was sitting reading a magazine in my lap. And on the back of the magazine, there was the brand new 747-800 being introduced. And I'm like, wow, I've always wanted to fly 747s. That's like my, my ultimate lifetime goal. So I look at the bottom of the... Uh, of the advertisement and at that stage now we're talking uh early to mid 2000s and invent of email and there was an email address so i file up my good old computer my aol at that stage probably with the dsl and the ee all the screeching and stuff like that online and send out an email saying, here's a copy of my resume, all that kind of stuff. And that was a company out in the Gulf, out in the Middle East. And they had just ordered 2747-800s freighters. I think it was freighters at that stage. So, uh, and then I was out on a layover somewhere out west and... uh, and I get an email saying I've been shortlisted. I had no idea what shortlisted mean. Um, is that shortlisted? I guess short. I guess it's short. It's not, it's not good. Long is good. Short is bad. So I'm like, oh well, at least I applied. And then I a few hours later says, when can you be here? I'm like, oh wow, I guess shortlisted is a good thing. <laughs> so lesson learned. And uh, next thing you know, I'm packing my bags and I'm going out to Dubai in the Middle East, in the Gulf. And I, they tell me that you have to do a SIM session, SIM practice. 
like, you know, it's a four day interview and you have to do a uh, sim interview and there's like an HR panel, there's a medical panel, it's a four day process. So I went to Best Buy, bought Microsoft Flight Simulator, whatever version was at that time, probably like three and uh you know practice doing pattern work in a triple seven on microsoft flight simulator and then went over took my sim test and took then after you get done with your sim test day one they call you at 7 p.m saying whether you should show up for the next three days or you should pack up and go back home and 7 p.m the phone rang and said uh, seven o'clock in the morning you know be back here I'm like, well, that was good. Yeah, I guess that worked <laughs> Thank out. Thank you. Thank you, Microsoft Flight Simulator. <laughs> was it pretty, I mean, I'm guessing it wasn't too comparable, but did you feel like Microsoft Flight Sim, the older one, actually prepared you for the simulator? Or do you think it was just your flying skills? You know, it just, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, like on my, I mean, I definitely didn't grease that, that 777 onto the airport there. But, uh, I mean, you know, with the CRJ, you come with a nose down, especially in the 200, you come, you have to lawn dart. And just before you... You know, just before you land, you flare it or level the nose off. And in the triple seven, you come with like a positive deck angle before you touch down. But uh, it definitely prepared me for like at least knowing what outside's going to look like. You know, where's where's the because they kind of give you a brief uh, pattern what to you know what to expect. They don't just kind of throw it at you out of the you know out of the blue. They tell you like you're going to come in, you're going to do some pattern work for the ILS running one two. You're going to go to VOR, you're going to hold, you're going to do this, you're going to intercept that radio. They just want to see like overall that you, you know, you can fly your way out of a paper bag. So, so I, at least I knew where the VOR was in relation to the airport, or I knew what this was there, you know. So it did it did give you a bit of orientation. So, and you know, being the being through growing up, I've played Microsoft Flight Simulator since probably version 1.0. It used to be a black screen with little green dots that moved around. And then, you know, as as time developed, my I never had like the Microsoft computers or the, the advanced computers. I had a Radio Shack Tandy, you know, junk computer. So I used to have to go on Friday nights, we'd go to my buddy that lived like a few blocks away and fire up his Microsoft Flight Simulator and go you know, practice on that on his computer because he had the colored screen. <laughs> Leave alone what's out there today. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. did they? So you got the call. You are going to the airline. Uh, were you? Are, did you already give your two weeks notice to the regional, or were you in Dubai? You got the call. Show up tomorrow at seven a.m. and then you're like, oh, well, sorry, regional, but I'm done. No, seven o'clock in the morning when you show up the next day. You're pretty much what you're doing is you are at that stage. <laughs> you are afforded the opportunity to finish the interview the next four days. So now you got to do four more days of interviewing. So now you, that's where you do your HR panel, your CRM panel, your human factors panel. You meet up with a shrink. They analyze how you take battery of tests and exams. They like psychometrics. And then, I mean, it's literally, then you go to the medical center and then they run almost an astronaut's medical on you. And that's, you know, the whole process is four days from hello to goodbye. And then you come back home. And then two weeks later, you get a phone call and saying, yay or nay. So I finally got the phone call and they said, yay. <laughs> I'm like, all right, now I got to make the big decision. Did you weigh the pros and cons? I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, obviously. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of lists. Yes, 100%. Okay. And you chose? 
I chose, hey, it's a stone unturned. Let's go turn it. <laughs> yeah. So that was in 2005. That was in 05. Okay. So 2005, you accepted a job to go fly 747s in Dubai. This was freight or was it people? Well, I, I, all I knew that they had 747s on order because they had, but at that stage, the 747-800 had not been produced yet. So this was like a development order that they had put in. Um, so I just said yes. And I, um, I'm sure they kind of told us in the, in their little demo or the, their little uh, spiel of what uh, airplanes they had. I mean, I, I knew that they had triple sevens because I went there on a triple seven and I saw a three thirties and three forties on the ramp. So I didn't really know what airplane I'll be assigned when I started. I wanted, I was super impressed by the triple seven, 300 ER on my flight there. And I was hoping if it's not Boeing, I'm not going. That was my mentality. Did that stick? Did you get to stay on a Boeing? I got the Airbus. <laughs> <laughs> and you I got went, the Airbus. And, and Tarek was going. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, are you serious? And they tell you after you, after you show up, they tell you what airplane you're going to get. And I got, I got the Airbus. Um, so now I'm trying to like haggle and with, I'm like, all right, who wants the good? There's like 16 of us in my class. I'm like, who wants, uh, who wants the Boeing and who wants the Airbus? I'll take your Boeing. I'll swap you. They're like, nope, you're not allowed to swap. I'm like, come on, here's my, take my airplane. <laughs> were you eventually okay with the Airbus when you just went through it? Were you happy that you're on it or were you just trying to get out and get in a Boeing as soon as possible? I always felt like, I always felt like I should have been in a Boeing airplane, you know? But uh, then I got to do my classes and I start learning the Airbus and I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is not too bad. I like this. I like what I'm seeing here. And uh, I've been flying Airbuses now for almost two, 16, 17 years. Wow. So you've never got yeah. to Boeing. I never got to the Boeing, no. Damn, <laughs> <Man>, that's hilarious. <laughs> yep. <laughs> one day. You'll get that Boeing one day, right? One day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. what, what were the main differences? Uh, we might even have to do a whole separate podcast on this to, to really put this out. But what were the main differences, and in, in as short as you can kind of go into it, between flying in the States and flying in the Middle East? Now, obviously, you've flown in the States for a regional. You've flown in the Middle East for probably what is determined now to be can, pretty much a major airline, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that? Yeah, it's right. definitely equivalent of the majors here. So you flew... We- Regional in the States, a major in the Middle East, and now you're at a major in the States again. Uh, compare your experiences. Uh, I mean, what was it like going going from the States to Dubai and then coming back? Uh, was it uh, just a crazy mess? Was it just not a, not worse, but just different? Or is it better? Kind of explain your experiences a little bit. You know what? I mean, like like when, when, I, when I accepted the job to go overseas, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't just switching a job or going for a new job. It was just changing a job, changing your lifestyle, changing, I mean, saying goodbye to your family, saying goodbye to your friends, and then going starting everything again from scratch. Everything you'd have to learn. You're learning, uh, you're making new friends, you're living in a new environment. The Where you go grocery shopping now is different. Where your friends are different. Your The road signs are different. The streets are different. The people talking in different languages. Uh, the, the mentality of the company you're working for is different. The airspace you're flying in is different. I mean, everything is different. There's nothing similar other than the word airplane. That's the only similarity out there. Uh, so, you're, I mean, the, with the 330, it was pretty nice 
to because like I was saying earlier, it was a good introduction. It flew around for about we do like local short hops that were about an hour away and we flew all the way to London, which would have been or Frankfurt out west, which are about seven hour flights or five hours out east to Bangkok and and to like the west the eastern part of India. Uh, so it was a good like it was a good introduction so before you going into like the super long flying um, to add, I guess I mean to emphasize on to on your answer to your question um, yeah it was different it was everything was different you know the the mentality management the company how it's managed everything was you know from a regional to a major uh, so I don't know if I'm, I'm answering your question exactly or not. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to, I'm probably guessing it's hard to really say what is different other than just it's different. You know, uh, at an, an airline at the end of the day is going to run pretty similar. I mean, they're going to put profits above everything else and they want to make as much money as possible and utilize their schedule to benefit the airline. So I'm guessing that is also going to be very similar. Uh, company culture-wise, is it similar in Dubai as it is in other places? I know in Asia... There, there was, I don't know if there still is, just like whatever the captain said was was pretty much law and you could not really go against that. Was that similar in the Middle East or was it more of a, a CRM-based uh, environment? No, it was very CRM-based. Uh, uh, the company was mainly managed by Western mentality as far as like the human factors department. Uh, it was mainly between... English, North Americans, U.S. and Canadians, and Australians. Uh, they kind of developed the program over there. So, And they were very, very uh, uh, cognitive of the, uh, the CRM factor and the human factors and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was, you never felt that stuff that, I've, that we've all heard about happening in Asia. Uh, the captain was respected as the captain of the the ship. I mean, he had the, they call them commanders over there, <laughs> and uh, so you had to get used to that, to different terminology and stuff like that. But I mean, uh, yes, you their word was final, but it didn't go unchallenged. There was a the it wasn't a very steep grade between the left seat and the right seat. It was a fairly uh, fairly level grade. Yeah, which was pretty good, and they and they uh, they promoted that. The company promoted that as well, and also the level of experience that they had. Guys sitting in the right seat wasn't people who were just completely green, just came out of flight school either. So people in the right seat knew what they knew how to fly. They knew what was going on. They had the pretty good training. <laughs> like so, to yeah. hear that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of comparing. Apples to apples. So we'll compare where you are now, the major, to your life then. Uh, quality life-wise, um, pay-wise, just kind of uh, overall how your lifestyle was. Is it similar or is the States kind of like the, the best, the st flying for a major airline in the States, the best job that you can possibly have when everything is going well in the airline industry? I personally, like I've, after being over there for such a long time, I mean, I would be taxing behind a, a U.S. carrier airplane taken off out of, you know, out of uh, Charles de Gaulle or out of Heathrow or we'd be taxing out of Taipei and I would see the U.S. flag behind the U.N. registration number. 
before behind the before sorry behind the November registration number, I see the U.S. flag. I'm like, oh man, I still want to go back home and fly for a U.S. carrier. You know, for a major, I would just like look at that tail number and the flag, and I'm like, oh man, they're they're finishing up and they're going back home. How cool is that? And I've always wanted to do that. I've always like again like i had that instinct that i needed to do that um and i'm so happy now to be with a major here back home flying uh, it's a different uh it's a different mindset over there than over here uh, the quality of life here is much better as far as the time off you have at home uh over there you you get a lot of you you travel the world uh you get to see different things different places uh but how many times you're gonna see the eiffel tower how many times you're gonna see a big ben how many times you're gonna see the opera sydney sydney house you know the uh, opera house in sydney uh i'd rather see my backyard way more than see the eiffel tower a bazillion times (laughs) so that being said yeah the quality of life is i i like it here much better but again that works for me that's something that I like. Somebody else might have a different, you know, a different opinion. What about pay? Is pay pretty comparable over there or do we get paid more in the States? Once again, let's caveat this with when everything is going well and the industry is at the top of, a, of its market. Yeah. The, I mean, over there for, for being, trying to compare apples to apples and orange to oranges, the money that you made there, uh, afforded you a very good lifestyle over there and the money that you make here you i mean if i lived in new york or miami or la i would have a different lifestyle than i have here in the midwest so it's uh you make your life you make you make it for what you have definitely that's a good way to put it i like that yeah that's that's a good way to answer that question and definitely i could see that for sure. Miami, New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, a little bit different than Columbus, uh, Charlotte, and uh, Dallas. Exactly. Or Tulsa, so Oklahoma. It's, yeah, exactly. So, it, and, but you have that option. You make, I mean, no, you, make, you have that option of living where you want to live. Now, when you were, you always saw the, the, the end registration number, the American flag. Um, were, would you come over for any job or did it have to be with, uh, one of the big airlines here or were you just happy to come over in general i wanted to come back i mean when i left when i went overseas there was nothing going on here 9 11 this the dust had not settled yet from all the bankruptcies and the slowdowns that happened after you know the tragedy of 9 11 and then uh, shortly before going overseas h65 had kicked in as well so the industry here there was literally like nothing going on and there were no jobs with the majors, no jobs anywhere. Um, so that was one of the reasons where, like I said earlier, this wanted to kind of go fly international, get the romance, you know, just have breakfast in New York and dinner in Sydney or have dinner in Sydney and breakfast over the North Pole, you know? <laughs> so, uh, I wanted I wanted that experience, and uh, so that's why one of the reasons I went overseas and to come back home. Um, I had my goal of who I wanted to fly for. I had two airlines that I wanted to fly w- to work for, and I got my one of my picks. So you had two airlines you wanted to fly for. 
uh, and you were able to choose one of those, if you never had one of those two airlines, would you have, have made the jump for something that maybe you thought wasn't as, as good of a job or would you have stayed? That's a very interesting question. I probably would have liked to come back home. I missed living back here in the U.S. Uh, I, you know, for the little things that lifestyle afforded me here. And I wanted to come back and live here. So uh, I would have, like I said earlier, I don't have everything plotted. I just cross every bridge when I get to it. So I would have probably, once I got to that bridge, I would have made up my, you know, kind of evaluated what what I have at hand and made my decision right then and there. Looking back on your career and how things have played out, you've definitely taken a unique a unique path. And like you said, you haven't had anything planned out. You have, you've kind of just dealt with the punches as they've come. Looking back now, and as you can see how everything played out, do you have any regrets? Do you have anything you wish that you would change? Or uh, if you could go back and do it again, you'd do everything the same? Uh, you know what? I look at where I'm at today and where I started out. I think the only regret I would have had was is probably, as I mentioned earlier, is not going flying an uh, F-18 off an aircraft carrier. Um, that is the only thing that I feel like I've missed out on in my, in my journey. And that's what I, that's why I have to do that private at this point now, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. At this stage, uh, I'm going to have to get me a, you know, pay off somebody to get me land on aircraft carrier or something. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. (laughs) You're going to have to buy your own aircraft carrier, buy your own F-18. It seems like an expensive uh, venture you got going there for you. I mean, at this stage, I would be happy to get a ride in the back of, the, uh, of an F-18 or, or an F-16. You know, sometimes <laughs> you see those people yeah. from like newscasters, they get to go in the back of an F-18. I'm like, oh man, lucky. Well, yeah, that's yeah. going to be your angle. We'll have, to, we'll have to do that. We'll start a uh, social media hashtag for you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Perfect, poor, poor old T. Yeah, <laughs> give, right. him, give him a ride in the back. <laughs> yeah. Come on, help yeah. him, please. All right, yeah. I have uh, one more section for you. This is called the rapid fire section. Uh, the quickest possible answer. You have no explanation whatsoever. And this is just going to be uh, aviation-based questions. You ready? All right, shoot. All right, favorite airplane overall? Lockheed Altair 11 TriStar. What about, what about a corporate airline or a corporate plane? I like the, uh, the Falcons. So that new Falcon uh, yeah. 900 looks pretty sweet, right? Falcons are awesome. What about yeah. a small piston plane? Uh, probably the the chieftain is dear to my heart, so I'll say yeah. chieftain. All right. What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Oh, I'm gonna get in trouble for this one. Uh, you get two of them actually. All right. Uh, I used to say I used to say the Nimrod. It's like some British ugly submarine hunter. It's okay. called a Nimrod, and the 787. Ooh, what <laughs> really? I know. Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever heard anyone really say they hate the way the 787 looks. Man, I'm like shook right now. Well, coming from an Airbus A380 guy to yeah. a 787, it just looks like, I mean, the A380 wasn't a very pretty machine. Yeah, but I was I think the say, 787, <laughs> yeah, the 787 is an uglier airplane than the A380. Yeah. Well, I guess all we can say is which one's still being made. Oh, <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, here's uh, what is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Um, wish I knew before I became a pilot, how precious is having those connections, you know, like, uh, being, going to the airport and talking to random people and how, how open people are to 
be helpful to take you out and fly and show you things. Who is one person in the industry you'd like to meet most? Could be living or dead. Uh, John Glenn. There you go. I met, I used to beat him all the time. He was the most, one of the most amazing people. I used to meet him on the ramp here in Columbus. And I would have a million questions for him. And he would end up asking me a million questions. I never got to ask him the million questions. He was so down to earth. It was amazing. Awesome. What's your favorite yeah. thing about aviation? Uh, Twofolds. The interaction between man and machine is just amazing. I mean, you fly this machine, like the 380 weighed 1.25 million pounds for takeoff. And you'd fly it for 16, 17 hours and you would land it and there'd be nothing wrong with it. And in the back, you had 650 people that ate, drank, slept, watched movies. And you'd land this machine, there'd be nothing wrong with it. Not even a light bulb went out. So the interaction between man and machine is amazing. And the romance of, I like nature and flying over mountains and seeing sunsets and sunrises over the oceans, over the poles. I mean, in in this job, like you've seen, we've seen more sunrises and more sunsets than most people would ever dream of seeing. So, so yeah, the, the interaction with nature and machine. Like that. That's a good answer. What's your favorite airport you've ever landed at? I liked landing into Amsterdam. It was pretty fun going into. I like that. What's your least favorite airport you've ever landed at? Mumbai. Mumbai. <laughs> <laughs> Any reason why? And they got a runway that I think last time was worked on was no disrespect to anybody or any you know anybody in particular, but I think runway zero nine two seven. I mean, it's so. It's just. It's always hazy and rainy. You can never see the lights. The runways, I mean, so the condition of the runway, the surface of the condition of the runway is so bad. You you could barely see the instruments when you're rolling for takeoff. I mean, just think it's bouncing up and down and just noisy there. It's just everything. Get me off this thing now. <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah. Toga takeoff. <laughs> just get off the ground. Uh, would you yeah. rather fly IFR or VFR? Both. Is that, can, you, can you say both? Yeah, both works. Yeah, well, you fly IFR, you fly old from one point to the other without seeing anything, and you land, which is amazing. You see the lights and you land, and VFR, you get to see the beautiful scenery as well, so both. Would you, uh, or no, here's one. What is your favorite airport food? So you have a connection flight, or connecting flight, and you got to go grab some food. What's your go-to food? I would say Chipotle, but there's very few airports that have Chipotle. Yeah, in what them. the heck, I can man. tell you exactly. I know. What's up with that, right? Yeah, come on, Chipotle. Uh, so, Panda Express. <laughs> All right, Panda Express. What about overseas? Uh, what's your go-to food overseas? Uh, I don't know, man. It's just kind of like, I mean, if I see, if I find any American outlet, usually that's where I go. That's to where you go. It makes yeah. you feel like home. Yeah, yeah, so I kind of can't take my food with me on with me on the roads. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or cities? Beaches are pretty good because um, beaches are nice. I like yeah, yeah, beaches. better better scenery. Mountains, what, there's nowhere to nowhere to put it down. Like what happened with you? That's very true. <laughs> yeah. uh, this one might be tough for you. Uh, Airbus or Boeing? Oh man, yeah. I you know I I, I would always say. Boeing, but being an Airbus for the past, like I said, decade and a half, I would definitely say Airbus at this stage. Man, that's crazy. 
Yeah, I know. I know. All right, this is a good one. You have some good input on this one because you have probably seen a lot of airline liveries. What is your top overall one that you've ever seen? Or maybe even you've flown. I don't know. you probably flown some cool ones too. I like the Royal Jordanians on the Elston 11 and the 747. They have a very classy paint job, I think. I want to say that I'm probably wrong, but I feel like there is one in Chicago when I was driving home. I saw they parked some really close to one of the highways here. And I was like, I haven't seen one of those here in forever. So I think I did see one of those. Those are pretty cool. Yeah, it definitely gets your attention. It looks like it's a pretty paint job. Yeah. Would you rather fly one very long trip, which I'm sure you have in the A380, or would you rather fly a lot of long, short trips in one day? Uh I love both as well. I mean, I just, I just like flying. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's definitely satisfaction to flying the super long, I mean, 17, 18 hour flights. There's satisfaction to that. And, you know, from your one end of the planet and a day later, you're having dinner on the other end of the planet. There's definitely satisfaction to that. But at the same time, there is satisfaction going up and down a few times. But I think my limit at this stage of the game is probably like, two to three legs a day, but I'll cap it at that. I think it changes with where you are in your career. You know, I think um, maybe when you're younger, you want the, the longer trips, maybe you want the shorter trips eventually, but it definitely does change as you, uh, as kind of your priorities change. Yeah. For, for a while, for a while, as I was saying, if I have to get up and use the bathroom more than once, it's too long of a flight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's definitely the case. Well, if you had Chipotle before the flight, you might be going more than <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I gotta, you gotta watch that, right? Yeah. What's the yeah. hardest check ride you've ever had? Uh, hardest check ride, I would have to say it was my surprisingly a multi engine because I did it in a somewhere completely different for, from where I did my training. So everything was, was foreign to me as far as the, the area. I mean, I did it just west of Dayton and all my training was done here in central Ohio and southern Ohio. So just that you know, just having that familiarity with what's around you. So that just kind of created a bit of a curveball there. Yeah, that definitely does change things a lot. Yeah. Um, what's the biggest win in your career that you've had so far? Uh, I guess just probably making captain on the A380, you know, at a fairly young age and being able to take my family and, you know, as as growing up sitting behind my dad on in the cockpit and then having the ability to you know he he wasn't with me in flight this time but these you know before coming up in the cockpit for takeoff and taking pictures and having those memories being made I bet that was a pretty proud moment for him too yeah i mean i'm sure it was it was definitely it's a very precious i mean a very precious probably the pinnacle of my career i would say yeah would you rather fly a crj or an erj CRJ would as you, a fly, flying, yeah, as, as a as a pilot, CRJ. Would you? Oh, there's my. Here's my next question: Is would you rather be a passenger on a CRJ or an ERJ? If I was anything less than five five, probably a CRJ. But yeah. you'd need to see a chiropractor. I think every CRJ <laughs> ticket needs a chiropractor because everybody's neck is twisted. Yeah. Looking at that window. <laughs> yeah, and so look, ERJ would be the answer. <laughs> let me add the 145 isn't in this equation because the 145 is the same way. That's a tiny little plane. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I the 145 is very narrow compared to a CRJ. I cringe yeah. when I see a 145. Yep. I'd, I'd rather be on a CRJ. Yeah. Absolutely. Piper yeah. or Cessna? 
Oh man, you got hard questions. Yeah. Uh, I would say I like both, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go and say Piper just for the heck of it. My last one is: What is your overall favorite airline? Favorite airline? Uh, I would probably say the company I fly for right now. All right, <laughs> cool. We'll keep it secret. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, perfect, man. Those are all the questions I have for you. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, As always, it's fun to talk to another Buckeye. It's been great to hear your route and just uh, what you've done and how things have just kind of fallen in place and if you've made the decisions on the fly and how to go and uh, literally fell in your lap. Like you said, you're reading an email, you're reading a magazine, which people don't read magazines anymore, I don't think. But, (laughs) you know, uh, it's just really cool that that happened. And I really appreciate you coming on. We'll probably have to do another one where we can go more of a deep dive into your time in the Middle East and kind of compare it over here. Because I think that'd be really beneficial for people and, and seeing the differences between the two companies. So I really appreciate you coming on, man. And thank you so much. No, thank you, man. I appreciate you, you know, appreciate making this happen. And also, I'd like to thank you for, like I said earlier, for all the your stories that you bring up from people and for somebody like myself who has been out of the equation, you know, here domestically in the U.S. And as far as, but I'm fairly still interested in the whole flight training and what's going on in the industry. And you hear people's different routes and what they have done and everything else that they have done to get to where they are. So keep at it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to hear that. Uh, I always love good feedback. So uh, like I said, I really appreciate it, man. And uh, I'm excited for your episode to, to come out. So thanks so much for spending some time with me, man. Outstanding, man. OH. I-O. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. All right. AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode 153 of the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Like, share, comment, do everything you need to do to this. Uh, let all your friends know about the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. If they haven't listened to it, wake them up. Show them what's going on. We're doing some great things here. Uh, I wanted just to give another shout out. There is going to be some sort of product launch here, either the end of this month or the end of February, sometime in between <laughs> a month from now, essentially. Uh, it's going to be exclusively dropped on Patreon to start out with, so it's going to be kind of a secret, so uh, more will come there for all the Patreon supporters right now, but it will be available for everyone, hopefully at the latest by the end of February, so be on the lookout for that. I'm going to try to build some hype for that. It's pretty exciting, and I'm excited for it. Uh, crossing two loves of my life, I guess, <laughs> which could sound weird, but yeah, I'm excited for it. Be on the lookout for it. Check out Patreon, uh, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on Pilot the Pilot. I hope you guys are having a great day and as always, happy flying.